The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. As law firms, we are a services business. However much we want to support the well-being of our teams, we need our clients to be on board with that as well, because a lot of our role is in responding to what clients need from us. People who push back a little bit more in organisations, even politely, and just say, look, I'm happy to do that piece of work, but it'll mean cancelling meeting up with my friend or or something like that. I feel like they're almost respected a little bit more within an organisation. And if you're always saying yes, if you're always saying, yes, I'll do that, I'll do that, even though you're going above and beyond, it starts to sort of become underappreciated. Hello listeners, it's Yasmin. It's lovely to have your company. So today I've got two guests that I'm speaking to. We're going to have a bit of a panel discussion. So my guests today are Anthony Seal and Anthony is the CEO of Legatics. A little bit more about what they do later on in the episode. Lucy Sherwood is a partner at Pinsent Masons and Pinsent Masons are one of the founding members of the Mindful Business Charter. And we're going to speak to Anthony and Lucy specifically about some YouGov findings, a survey that was carried out to look at the burnt out and stress experiences of lawyers. And this may be useful for you in your organisation to learn a little bit more about those findings. What can you actually do to help your staff and employees to manage that work-life balance? So sit back, enjoy, and hopefully you'll get something out of this episode. The Hearing. Anthony Seal and Lucy Sherwood, it's a pleasure to have you on The Hearing Podcast. Great to have your company. Thanks very much for having me. Thanks. Delighted to be here. Fantastic. So, Anthony, I know you're the founder of Legatics, and we're going to talk a little bit about your journey into setting that up and what Legatics actually does. And Lucy, you're one of the founders. I know you're from Pinsent Masons for the Mindful Business Charter. Again, we're going to find out more about the Mindful Business Charter for our listeners who are not familiar with the work that you do. But before we get into that, Anthony and Lucy, I'm going to ask you the same question. I ask a lot of the guests, our guests this question. So, Anthony, first, you can you just tell us briefly your career path into law? Sure. So I'm probably um, a bit of an unusual lawyer in that I, I did a geography degree and then I did uh, an MPhil in satellite data analysis and polar science. So I had a very sort of scientific computer programming sciencey ice sheet type mindset um and i got picked up even before i did that mphil on the graduate milk rounds and i asked um my firm to delay it for a year where I, where I kind of debated do i want to carry on going with academia am i loving this too much or shall i go and join a law firm um and i eventually decided that um something about academia you're always on the outside of the world looking in and i wanted to get stuck into um things that were happening in the world the transactions that were shaping the world and i decided to um take up the offer and and join a law firm and i think when i arrived i um i started to find myself thinking about a different in a different way to perhaps some of the people around me about the work i was um undertaking and i think there are a lot of people who had law backgrounds or perhaps humanities backgrounds before they did the conversion course and and became lawyers and i think um ideas started to go off in my mind about how uh, i could approach some of the work i was doing um using more technology interesting and and lucy what was your journey into law Mine was a fairly traditional path. Um, I did my training contract and qualified um, almost 20 years ago now. Um, And then um, sort of 
practiced as a, a finance and restructuring lawyer for many, many years. And then I spent some time as a professional support lawyer, worked part-time, did various different things whilst I had young children. And then sort of through being a professional support lawyer, got more into the technology side of um, legal services, which led to then becoming a, a full-time sort of not legal technology so much, but certainly looking at how we provide services to our clients in a different and more sort of modern and digital way, um, which is now my focus. And I, I lead the advanced delivery team at Pinsent Mason. So um, yeah, very much sort of not practicing on the traditional side anymore, but looking at deploying technology and alternative service delivery methods for our clients. Brilliant. Thank you, Lucy. And so, Auntie, I want to get into Legatics. So what does Legatics do and how? why did you decide to leave as a practicing lawyer and set this company up? What's the story behind that? Um, so Legatics is a transaction management platform. So it's a place online for people to conduct legal transactions. People can see exactly what they need to do next on a transaction. Um, and we host all of the transaction documents in a structured way. And when you have those documents in a structured way, what you can do is you can start to pick and choose bits of the transaction to automate. So for example, we would automate the production of a Bible at the end of a transaction, the, the indexing of that, the hyperlinking of it. Um, we can take um, a conditions precedent schedule from a loan document and automate the, the, the production of a CP checklist from that um, and allow people to track the satisfaction of those obligations as, as the transaction progresses. So um, essentially we're an online place where you can um, conduct your legal transaction. Did you find that when you were practicing that this was really missing, that that would have been incredibly helpful to you, I guess, when you were actually doing the job of a, as a lawyer? Absolutely. Like, I, I think that I was doing things that, that didn't really make sense to me. Um, we yeah. were having, to, for, for even people to just know what was happening on their transaction, we'd have these really, really long calls and, and they'd go on for hours and hours and hours. And you, you felt like there was yeah. always this medal waiting for you at the end if you kind of reached the end, but there never was. Um, and it would be sort of like item number one, I think this is sitting with someone and, you know, they sent it to me on this date and item number two, and it'd go all the way to item number 300. And and that in combination with um, some really, really lengthy Word documents that were updated by, by junior mm. lawyers uh, um, and sent out and then probably never read and then were out of date as soon as they were sent, sent out just didn't mm. seem like a sensible way of, of managing transactions. So a live online environment seemed to solve those problems for me. Um, and I I couldn't see anything that, that would do it in a way that was... Um, uh, that really spoke to lawyers in a way that they could really take something off the shelf and use it on their transactions um, in the way I would have liked when I was practicing. And so it, it must be useful to have that background as a lawyer, knowing what your clients need. But was there a moment or several moments, Anthony, where you thought, I've got to do something else? What, what was it that was there a catalyst moment for you? Can you think of one or? Um, th there was definitely um, a lot of tasks that, um, that 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 built up and 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 made me question what 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 was I doing here? I think thinking back to the reasons I wanted to become a lawyer in the first place, it was to really understand the commercial motives of a of a transaction. Why were the clients doing the things that they were doing? How, how can I play a part in making those things happen in the world? And I think when I was stuck 
you know indexing items for for bibles and producing trackers in maybe microsoft word or something as to where documents were on the transaction i didn't really feel like i was connecting with that purpose and and being a part of that so i think a combination of, of of doing a lot of those kinds of tasks and probably the opportunity of seeing a, a better way of doing it um led me to to leave the law and, and and create something else and i think at that time like maybe about six years ago there probably wasn't the same kind of internal innovation functions that exist within law firms today so there probably wasn't the same career route that maybe exists now which is to to, to to join something like Lucy's team that starts to think about new ways of delivering law. Um, I think at that time you had to go out and build an entire software platform to go and do that. Um, whereas yeah. maybe I would have taken the slightly less risky option that maybe that yeah maybe would have got less a few less questions and and a few less worries of, of leaving entirely and and deciding to create a company. But um, it, it felt like something I needed to do. Yeah, sure. And, and Lucy, Vincent Mason's are one of the founding members of the Mindful Business Charter. Do you want to tell us, I mean, I'm familiar with it and I knew about it before we, we, you know, I had to research for this podcast. But for those listeners who aren't familiar with the Mindful Business Charter, could you tell us a little bit about what you do? What, what's the purpose of it? Sure. So I, I think one of the um, one of the things that came out very clearly from this survey that legatics have done looking at sort of stress and burnout is there are still high levels of stress and burnout in the profession and the mindful business charter sets out some principles that are designed to support and enable well-being at work it was founded by Pinsent Masons, Adelshaw Goddard and Barclays and now runs to a much longer list of organisations, um, plenty of law firms in there, but also plenty of um, other corporates who are signing up to the charter. And I think that's one of the really important things about the charter is it. we recognise that as law firms, we are a services business. And so however much we want to support the well-being of our teams we need our clients to be on board with that as well because a lot of our role is in responding to what clients need from us so to an extent it's all very well for us to say you know that the mindful business charter contains principles like respecting rest periods enabling people to take a lunch break, not sending emails at unsociable times of the day unless it's absolutely necessary. And all, all of which, you know, we, we embed very strongly into our business, but we need to work with our clients to make sure that that is meaningful. Because if a client needs us to do something, that means we are going to have to have the team available until the small hours of the morning. There isn't really any any getting around that we're here to service what that client needs and if that's what they need we'll do it but what the MBC has done and and the reason it's so important to have that client interaction as well is it allows us to have those conversations with our clients by reference to MBC so we can say look you know we've all signed up to the mindful business charter so when you say that you need this during this time frame and that means we are going to have to keep people in over the weekend or cancel holidays can we just have a discussion about whether that's a genuine deadline or is there actually some flex could we say you know we'll maybe get you the first part by the weekend and then we could give everybody the weekend off and then we can do something next 
you know, next week to deliver the rest of it. It's not always going to be possible. It's the nature of doing business, but it allows us to have those conversations just to test whether or not we really do need to put people under that kind of pressure. Mm, and pretty brave conversations. And I mean, in the past, you wouldn't even question it, would you? You would just, the client needs something, you wouldn't even ask, it, do you really need it by that date? Has there been any pushback or has the response from clients been generally positive? What's been the feedback? It has been generally very positive. I think the organisations who've signed up to the charter and, and we continue to take on new signatories are doing so because they recognise, and particularly so post-pandemic, that wellbeing conversations are increasingly important. And I think that, you know, not just within legal services, but everywhere, it's a much more universal topic now, I think, than it used to be. So uh, I think clients recognise that, you know, in their industries and sectors, they're being asked exactly the same questions as we are um, by employees who maybe want a different work-life balance now and, you know, want to want to work in a different way and this is part of how they can respond to it Mm. and I guess it makes clients question their own practices internally if you're saying actually this deadline does it need to be by then they might even look internally to to what they're doing to their own staff so that has a a knock-on effect on their own practice and and behaviors which is which is encouraging that creates cultural change doesn't it if you're leading that from the top. So I'd love to hear, you, you mentioned, Lucy, and I'm going, going back to Anthony for this one. Legatics did some research, didn't they, looking at um, the experiences. What, was it 100 lawyers I think you surveyed? Is that correct? That's right. We, we partnered with YouGov, who are um, a well-known surveying organisation. They run a lot of political surveys um, and appear in the papers for those kinds of things. But we commissioned them to uh, um, look into the issue of, of stress and burnout within the legal profession. Um, and, and they brought a kind of rigorous uh, methodology to that, which, which we really, really liked. Um, and they found that, that over nine in 10 lawyers experienced stress or burnout at some point um, during their career, and more than a quarter of them experienced that on a, on a daily basis. They found that um, about two thirds of lawyers feel that their job has a negative impact on both their mental and physical health, um, which was another um, finding that really um, made us acknowledge the scale of the, the issues. And I mean, most jobs will require stress, um, and but obviously undue stress is, is not healthy. When I read that, I think listeners will question, what do you specifically mean by unhealthy stress and burnout? What, how do we, is that defined in the, I know it sounds like a strange question, but what, what does that really look like? I think that's a fair question. And um, you can ask, like, what is, okay, if we're saying nine out of 10 lawyers experience stress yeah. and burnout, well, what, what's stress for some pers- for some people and what's what's burnout for others? And I think it is a really, really personal thing. And I think that means different things for, for different people. And I think it warrants further questioning and investigation beyond what we've done into, into what that means for people. But I think even if you're sort of saying that a lot of that's stress and not quite burnout or something like that, just the scale of those findings, I think, still does show that it's just yeah. so prevalent within the profession and such a big issue and, and something that really does warrant further conversation. Yeah. And I think when people are answering that survey, they know what good 
and what bad looks like, you know, what burnout actually means to them, that it's unhealthy levels of stress that causes physical and mental ill health. They, they know they're answering that question for that reason. On the outside, you're a lawyer, calm and cool, but inside there's a passion to perform, a drive to be absolutely on your game. You prepare hour after hour, day after day, in the pursuit of excellence, relying on superior resources, serious preparation, and total confidence. That's the advantage we give you. Be your best with Thomson Reuters Practical Law. So I'm going to ask each of you as well, Lucy, what, what, how do you keep mentally and physically well whilst working in the law, which is a very stressful profession, as we know, but how... How do you do it on a personal level? Um, I suppose um, not anything particularly revolutionary. <laughs> um, one one thing I have found, um, or a couple of things I've found as I've sort of been around the block a few times, is making sure that you take some kind of break during the day. I think I just find stepping away from my screen and from meetings, emails, all of those sorts of things, and having a bit of time just to let my brain relax and calm down and and not be full of, you know, 50 different things. I find that really, really helpful. Um, The other thing that I try and do to the extent that I can is organise my week. And I think this is where that whole thing about agency and control becomes really important. And, and you know, just to recognise that I, I find it a lot easier to do some things when I'm working from home and can have peace and quiet and time to focus. And then I try and put aside other time for that, you know, frantic running from one place to another. It's great when you can organise your time in that way, but it's not always possible. So the other thing I've learned over 20 odd years is that sometimes you just have to go with it and it doesn't last forever. Yeah, but I'm thinking because you're a partner, Lucy, managing your time is probably easier than, say, someone who's a trainee or very junior in their career where their work is coming from their supervisor. And so they're not so much in control of their own diary as it were because some things can be landed on them and they have to turn it around quickly so how how do you think someone junior could could manage their time I think there's a there's a lot that managers supervisors partners can do to help with that and it's something that I am very mindful of is we call it in the mindful business charter thoughtful delegation you know actually think about the time at which you give somebody something to do so i i try again as much as possible not you know i unless i absolutely have to i'm not going to send somebody something at 5:30 and ask them to do it for the following morning and i'm conscious as well of of letting the team manage their own time when I was a junior lawyer and, and things are a bit different now because you can work remotely, but quite a lot of my late nights in the office were because I was waiting for somebody else to have the time to talk to me or tell me what I needed to do next or hand over a piece of work. So I was often not being very well utilised between you know 7pm and 11pm and then suddenly at 11pm I've got four hours work to do. And that has certainly made me more thoughtful of the way in which I 
um, I delegate to other people. Mm, certainly, yeah. Lucy, I've, I've got a theory I've thought of. Um, uh, can I put it to you and tell me, tell me what you think? I think that people who push back a little bit more in organizations, um, even politely and just say, look, I'm happy to do that piece of work, but it will mean cancelling meeting up with my friend or, or something like that. Um, I feel like they're almost um, respected a little bit more within an organization. And if, if you're always saying yes, if you're always saying, yes, I'll do that, I'll do that, it starts, even though you're going above and beyond, it starts to sort of become underappreciated. And I think I think maybe I saw that happening a little bit with it, with junior lawyers in, in, in my old law firm, but then perhaps even with at the client and the law firm level as well, if you're, if you're never questioning that, whether people start to take it for granted. Yeah, I think that's right. And I, I, I think it, it applies to both the kind of junior lawyer and the, the client relationship is I, I think there is sometimes a tendency to just expect the level of service that you're getting and if that is somebody always saying yes and I'll, you know, I'll do it within half an hour, whether or not that needs to happen, you just take it for granted that it will. Um, and I do think one of the things that's really important for junior lawyers, and I know it's it's not always an easy thing to do, is, as you say, speak up and say, because I think as much as we try to be thoughtful about these things, I, I I won't necessarily know, and also I'm managing lots of different people, I won't know if the thing that I have asked you to do means that you're going to miss, I don't know, your child's school play or your yoga class or just something that you had planned. And if you say, actually, I've got to go and do this now and I don't particularly want to do this piece of work at 11 o'clock at night, can we move the deadline? you know, probably that's going to be fine. And and I really think it's important that people feel encouraged to have those conversations. I'm going to be a bit controversial here, but I'm going to say anyway, as a woman, I know that when I was a training solicitor, Anthony, what you just said there, say, actually, do you mind if I do this tomorrow or something, because I meet up with my friend, I would, ne- I would never have done that. I was so compliant. And I think generally, yes, it's a stereotype, but women tend to be probably more people pleasing and compliant, I think, personally, from what I've seen. I don't know if Lucy, you're making a face there. I don't know if you agree with me, but I think probably men are more likely to question it. Actually, could I do this tomorrow? I don't know if that's your experience. That's certainly, I'm talking about 15, 20 years ago as a trainee. I saw that going on, that the pushback came mainly, if it did come back, it was more from the, the male colleagues. I think, I mean, certainly going back again, 20 odd years ago, to be even more controversial, I just, most of the men wouldn't have even asked, they would have just walked out of the office and just assumed that it was fine for them to go to their dinner. And that was more important. Um, And it's a sweeping generalisation. But yeah, I think there is definitely that point about who is more confident to be able to speak up. Is that something you did then, Anthony? I need to take tips clearly. I, I think I was probably quite good at, 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 um, at having those kinds of conversations. Um, I don't know whether it fell along gendered lines. It, it might have done a bit um, mm. in, in what I saw. Mm. Um, um, but I think I think there was almost a nervousness on the part of people giving out work sometimes that they might even pick the person who's most likely to say yes rather than the person that they're going to have to have a, yeah. a more challenging conversation with. And it, it doesn't feel right because it feels like the people who are almost trying to be more committed, trying to do better in their careers, not by saying, 
you know, I, I don't want to do this, but by saying I really do want to do this, um, we're almost the people who 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 then were were, were working too much and 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 perhaps shouldn't have been. Mm. I know that we you can't make assumptions either. I know Hogan Lovell's um, looked at unconscious bias years ago, and you know it's having conversations with people, not assuming, for example, someone coming back from maternity leave doesn't want a juicy piece of work or a challenging piece of work or work that requires them to go abroad perhaps for a period is actually to have the conversation with them not assuming oh obviously you've got a small child and and you don't want to do this and having a, a conversation with another colleague who may be perceived to be more available should we say it's it's an important point Anthony mentioned that you know we shouldn't make those assumptions you should still have the conversation with people yeah, I never like any kind of assumption that like because you're a man, you're less wanting to spend time with your family or something like that. Like I think I think Absolutely. it affects people in 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 lots of different ways. So. And that's about managing work life balance, our mental health as well, and respecting people have a life outside. I'm just seeing some reports of you know trainee newly qualified or trainees getting really big salaries, starting salaries at various firms, and I wonder how what your both of your views are on how that fits in with you know, people will probably say, well, of course, a level of stress is going to be involved. If they're getting these astronomical salaries, then how does that, how do we then send the message? Actually, you still, obviously, you need a work-life balance, but the more these salaries go up, how do you actually still push out the message that you still need to say to your boss, actually, could I, could I meet with my friend or could I do this tomorrow? How does that? How do we square that? I guess is what I'm saying. Um, I, I don't think it does mean just because you're getting well paid for something that that you've sacrificed every element of your your life for that. Um, mm. I think um, I think law firms could be um, almost a bit more inspired about how to attract the best talent. I think there's um, a lot of competition for talent at the moment, and I think salary is one way to compete. And I think law firms reach very quickly for salary mm. if they want to, if they want to attract the best lawyers. But I think introducing things like the mindful business charter, getting your reputation for a firm that really cares about um, uh, about their employees, I think is is something that's that's so so popular as well. And I think is is an underutilized opportunity for firms. I think if I was thinking about the conversations people were having, um, perhaps there were some conversations people were having, you know, could we get paid more at this firm or something? But there was a lot more conversation in my view about, you know, can I go home an hour early because it, it means a huge amount to me or can I have some flexibility to achieve um, something in my life? So I think there's more that firms can compete for on salary, but um, I don't think... Uh, I, don't, I don't think it's right to say that just because you're on a certain salary level that you're not you're sort of no longer a person and, and have, have, have mental health issues or anything like that and I think that's almost quite a dangerous route to go down yeah and you know a burnt out lawyer or one that's unwell is certainly no matter what you pay them it's, it's, it doesn't make any sense to to work them to death obviously um it's incredibly unhealthy work practices Lucy what what were your views on that uh I agree with Anthony. I, I think, um, you know, there, there are other things that that will be important to people. And I think the survey showed that actually salary, according to the respondents, wasn't their primary reason for mm. becoming a lawyer, whether that changes once they are a lawyer and, and are, are sort of in the profession already, um, would be interesting to probe a bit further. I think there are other things that 
motivate people when they're taking jobs. But I also think people make choices about where they work. And, you know, I've moved firms during my career for various reasons, um, not really anything to do with salary in the end, but Mm. because the firm that I went to was a better fit or, you know, offered me more opportunities and having sort of gone through the career path that I've gone, starting off in one place and ending up somewhere very, very different. One of the big attractions for me about the firm that I'm in at the moment is that I had the flexibility to do that. I haven't followed a traditional route to partnership and the firm has supported and enabled me to do that. That's not something that lots of other firms would do. So that's obviously much more important to me than... Mm how much I'm being paid because it allows me to develop the business that I want to work in. Brilliant. And and lastly, um, have you got any examples of case studies when firms have perhaps changed their culture after signing up to the Mindful Business Charter? Are you, Lucy, it's probably a question for you, really. Have you, have you got any examples of good practice that you can tell us about? I'm trying to encourage people to sign up, but could you let us know a little bit more? Yeah, so, I mean, we... we um, have really embraced the Mindful Business Charter and, and Richard Foley, our senior partner, who was one of the founders, was very clear that this wasn't just going to be something that we signed up to and then sort of put in a drawer. So we do regular um, audits internally and with clients. So our audit, our internal audits are, have been really useful and insightful. They're led by senior partners. They go out and talk to teams across the business and then the information uh, that's generated from those discussions about good practice and less good practice is taken back by the partner group and we look at it and say okay where can we do better and where have we seen real successes some of the the real success stories that we saw particularly during covid when my team were doing some really huge projects um and that you know that just tends to be the way we operate but we realized that the other partner and I who were running the job realized that the the late night email situation had got out of control um and we had people sending emails at all times of the night and then logging back on at six in the morning and you know we did the usual please don't do this unless you have to it still had a bit of an effect but didn't really and then my fellow partner who's a very powerful advocate for NBC said look we just need to stop because if you and I are not sending emails after eight o'clock that will probably change the behaviors of the rest of the team and it did so we just stopped we would save things in draft or set them to send um, on a delayed release we stopped and the volume just really quickly came down and that was something that honestly I wouldn't have thought of doing a few years ago and it really made a difference. Change has to come from the top doesn't it you set the tone and Anthony if anyone wants to get in touch with Legatics and is interested in in taking up your services how how can they do that? Sure they can visit our website legatics.com it tells you more about the software and you can fill in a form and um, we'd be happy to give people a demo of it. Fantastic. Anthony, Lucy, thank you so much for being wonderful guests on The Hearing Podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks very much, Anthony. So listeners, thank you as ever so much for listening. Please do get in touch with us with anything you'd like us to cover, any topics, future speakers, you know where to get in touch. We'd love to hear from you.
The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. To find out more, go to tr.com forward slash the hearing or subscribe via iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.